Now, in New England, things were not as bad as, as uh, uh, well, let me, actually, let me jump back to Isaac Watts. So when the revival begins, this will show you uh, how deep the antipathy was of many of the Baptists and Congregationalists of the Anglican Church. When the revival began, all these men are Anglicans, all of them. You'd think uh, men like Watts, who long for revival, would immediately embrace it. Absolutely not. There is no way any of this is of God. They're all Anglicans. You can understand why that you'd, they'd feel that way. He, what his memory of the Anglican Church was, the imprisoning of his father. And all, all, of, the, all of the laws that were still on the books that made him a second-class citizen in England, they'd all been enforced by the Anglican Church. And Isaac Watts didn't believe that this was of God. Well, one of his close friends, Philip Doddridge, another Congregationalist minister, and you may note that in the name of Doddridge, he wrote, he wrote a minor spiritual classic, uh, the, the Rise and Progress of Religion in the Soul. Uh, it was the, that was that book that was instrumental in the conversion of William Wilberforce. When uh, Philip Doddridge had George Whitfield preach in his pulpit, what, Watts was furious. He wrote to he wrote to Whitfield said, "What on earth are you doing to allow an Anglican preach in your pulpit?" Well, it got worse. Uh, Whitfield said to Watts, uh, said to Doddridge, "Would you like to come to London and speak at the Tabernacle?" No, it was a, a, a church that uh, uh, Whitfield had set up in London. And would you like to pray uh, the opening prayer before I preach? And Doddridge went down and told Watts he had gone, and he said the scene was incredible, what God is doing there. And he told, uh, Whitfield, again, was adamant. He said, you, sir, have disgraced the ministry of the gospel. And finally, Doddridge realized the only way my friend Isaac Watts is ever going to buy the truth of this is he needs to meet Whitfield. And so he took Whitfield to meet Isaac Watts in London, and Watts realized how wrong he had been. So, uh, again, I could give you stories after about that sort of thing, too. And uh, what's, what's vital here is to recognize that uh, I, I understand where people like Doddridge and Watts were coming from because of their, what they had experienced at the hands of the Anglican Church. But those of us who love the Reformed faith I think sometimes we're slow to recognize this. God can raise up those who love the doctrines that we love in all kinds of places. I've, I've met, over the last probably 15, 20 years, I've met numbers of, of men, in, say Pentecostal ministers, who become Reformed theologically, uh, reading literature. And some of them have stayed in that context, some of them have come out of it. And you think, you know, uh, how, how could they, as Pentecostals, come to those convictions and you just realize the sovereignty of God? Um, but let me talk a little bit about Edwards then. Um, Edwards is, uh, if Whitfield's the preacher remembered, Edwards is the theologian. Edwards is the greatest theologian I think America has ever produced. Uh, a remarkable uh, theologian, born in 1703. He would die in 1758. He was born into a household of a minister. His father, Timothy Edwards, was uh, the minister at East Windsor, Connecticut. Seventeen oh three to seventeen fifty eight. 
Um, his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, so his father then is Timothy Edwards. And uh, his maternal, uh, through his mother Esther, his maternal grandfather was Solomon Stoddard, who would die in 1729. He was the minister of Northampton, Massachusetts. Uh, Edwards grew up in East Windsor, Connecticut, right on the Connecticut River. Um, he's, one of a, he's one of 11 children. Uh, when you hear those numbers, I think, I, did I mention this about the, the large numbers of families? Maybe not. When you hear those numbers, you, you, you recognize uh, that a lot of these men at that time had large families. Many of the children died in infancy. So Cotton Mather, 15 children, buried 13 of them under the age of three. Philip Doddridge had similar sort of statistics. Uh, John Wesley's uh, mother, uh, Susanna, had 18 children, buried, buried seven of them before the age of one or two. And about eight or nine survived into adulthood. Uh, he had 10 siblings. All of them survived into adulthood, all 11. Very, very unusual. Uh, he had four older sisters and six younger sisters. So he's the only, he's the only, the only son of ten sisters. Uh, his father uh, had the unusual policy of educating the girls as he did the boys. So he taught the girls Greek and Hebrew, Latin, uh, history, literature. Uh, produced very remarkable women. Uh, the average marrying age in Connecticut at this point in time was around 18. Most of his sisters married around 25 to 30, if they married. There were two or three of them didn't marry. They were very, very strong women. His eldest sister, on one occasion during the revival, wrote him a 63-page letter as to why the revival was not of God, uh, arguing her case biblically, and that her, her brother, her only dear brother, was making a fool of himself defending the revival. Um, I've got some stories about his sisters, you, I, I could tell you, but we need to, need to press on. Uh, his youngest sister was quite a, a, quite a feisty young woman. Uh, uh, she married in 1742-43, and her husband was a, uh, was a minister, and he lived on the other side of the East Connecticut River, on the west side, and they decided to get married in February. And they figured it'd be a good month to get married because the, the Connecticut River was completely frozen every February. Nobody had ever known it not to be frozen. Well, this, 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 this uh, February, uh, a couple of days before the wedding, it started to melt. And uh, the young man's up the creek, so to speak, because there's no bridge. Uh, he can see his fiance's house across the river. There's no bridge. Uh, he doesn't have a boat. He has to walk a bet, the best part of a day north and then a day south. He's two days late for his wedding. And uh, his, um, his fiance is very upset with him, refuses to talk to him. And we know the conversation because she only talked to him uh, through the wall of, uh, she, she stayed in her bedroom and he had to yell through the wall, uh, through the door. And the whole house heard the following conversation. Uh, where on earth were you? You know, you left me standing there, and you were nowhere to be seen, and now you arrive, and 
what, 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 what do you have to, how do you explain yourself? Well, well, dear, he said, you know, the, as you know, the river was melting, and I didn't make a, a arrangements for that, and if I tried to cross, I would have drowned and died. Well, she said, sir, I don't want to marry a man who's not willing to die for me. <laughs> and uh, they did marry, but you can get something of her, her feisty spirit in that uh, particular exchange. Um, Jonathan was uh, educated uh, at home up until about the age of 12. His older sisters would have been part of his tutoring. They had uh, learned in, you know, the languages and so on. And then he went to uh, a, a school, uh, the, what, we, what we now would call uh, Princeton. Sorry, Yale. Uh, uh, he went to what is now Yale uh, between the ages of 12 and 17. Uh, graduated at 17 um, and uh, wrestled with his calling. Uh, he particularly says he wrestled with the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God in salvation. And uh, he's also wrestling with uh, uh, exactly whether or not to move away from, from, uh, from Connecticut. Uh, and um, somewhere in the spring, probably, of 1721, he is converted. And it's through reading that passage in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be praise and honor and glory. And uh, let me read you his account. He was reading this passage, he said, And there came into my soul, and was, as it were, diffused at a sense of the glory of God. A new sense, quite different from anything I ever experienced before. Never did any words of Scripture seem to me as these words did. I thought with myself how excellent a being that was. How happy I should be if I might enjoy God, be wrapped up to Him in heaven, and be, as it were, swallowed up in, in Him forever. From about this time I began of a new kind of apprehensions and ideas of Christ, and the work of redemption, and the glorious way of salvation by Him. An inward sweet sense of those things at times came into my soul, and my soul was led away in pleasant views and contemplations of them. My mind was greatly engaged in spending my time in reading and meditating on Christ, on the beauty and excellency of His person, and the lovely way of salvation by free grace in Him. You'll notice in that passage a number of the adverbs, or the adjectives he uses, things like sweet and lovely and the noun beauty. These, these come up again and again in Edwards' writings. And it, they're very important. They're, they're key indicators that Ed, Edwards stands in a line that goes back through people like John Owen and John Calvin, ultimately back through Augustine, and I would say biblically, where conversion is, about, is, is ultimately about the redirection of the affections. That there, is no, there is no genuine conversion without the affections being completely rechanged, or at least at least being redirected. And we now have a love for God that surpasses all loves. Over the next couple of years, he served in New York. Um, he served, uh, and it's probably down in the, in near Wall Street. Uh, I know you may come across, some people say that they actually know there's a plaque at the church he served at. I've been at the place where he, the church probably was. It was a Presbyterian church. There is no plaque, but it's somewhere near Wall Street today. Uh, Wall Street was, uh, was actually named after when the Dutch uh, took over Manhattan. 
He actually built a wall on Wall Street. That's where the, the northern part of the city was in Manhattan. And uh, so he served there for about half a year. And then his father really would like, wanted him to move closer to home. And so he moved to Bolton, Connecticut. And he was in Bolton for about half a year. Uh, he's restless. He goes back to Yale to do an MA. And it's a very difficult time for him, um, partly because he's wrestling with his calling, partly also because he falls in love with a young woman. And uh, the young woman is Sarah Pierpont. Uh, born in 1710, he's 13, she's 13 when he first sees her. Uh, she dies in 1758, same year as, as Edwards. And um, he, uh, Edwards is an introvert. Um, when his life is first, the first biography of him is written by his close friend Samuel Hopkins. And he, he, he Hopkins says, admits, he says, my, my friend Jonathan Edwards was not the easiest man to get to know. But once you, once he, once you, he admitted you to his heart, he said, you had a friend for life. Uh, Sarah, on the other hand, was a complete extrovert. And so you've got this young man, he's been smitten with her. She's only 13. Um, we actually have a description of her, which I'm going to read. Uh, but he doesn't know how to make his interests known. And uh, in 1723, he wrote this. She's 13. They say there's a young lady in New Haven who is beloved, beloved of that almighty being who made and rules the world. And there are certain seasons in which this great God, in some way or another invisible, comes to her and fills her mind with exceeding sweet delight. Remember I mentioned the word sweet? And she hardly cares for anything except to meditate on him. That she expects after a while to be received up to be where he is, to be raised out of the world and caught up to heaven, being assured he loves her too well to let her remain at a distance from him always. And there she is to dwell with him and to be ravished with his love and favor and delight forever. And if you promise, present all the world before with the richest of its treasures, she disregards it and cares not for it and is unmindful of any pain or affliction. She has a strange sweetness in her mind and a sweetness of temper, uncommon purity in her affections, is just, most just and praiseworthy in all her actions. And you could not persuade her to do anything thought wrong or sinful if you would give her all the world, lest she offend this great being. She is of a wonderful sweetness, calmness, and universal benevolence. She will sometimes go about singing sweetly from place to place and seems to be always full of joy and pleasure. And remember, she's 13. Um, four years later, he marries her. Uh, by that time, he's, called, he's been called to help his grandfather at Northampton. And uh, his grandfather, uh, Stoddard, had implemented a policy whereby he believed that the Lord's table was a means of conversion. And it's a bizarre, to me, it's a bizarre belief. And if you confess the Christian faith intellectually and were morally above reproach, you could take the table. That's not the way the church had begun. The church had begun as a congregationalist church, uh, a, a classic congregationalist church, in which you had to be converted to take the table. You had to be, be able to give a, a testimony of conversion. He believed that you, the table could be a means of conversion. 
He had started doing that in the 1690s. By the late 1720s, the church is is a mess spiritually. You've now got two generations of people taking the Lord's Supper who are not converted. The young people in the church would all sit at the back of the church. The church could house about 1,400 people, the entire town. The young people were all sit at the back of the church. Solomon started at the front of the church, couldn't see them. Jonathan tells us this. Most of the, most of the time during Sunday worship, they're acting up. And at nights, they're running wild in the town, drinking and engaged in what uh, Edwards calls frolics. And it's a euphemism for immorality. And the town's a mess. Within two years of his being called to be the minister, uh, Solomon's daughter is dead. Edwards is now the minister. His wife is 18. The church is built in an interesting pattern. It's the third building. If you ever go to Northampton, the, 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 the present building is the fifth building on the same spot. But this was the third building. It was built as a rectangle, like so. The young people would fill the pews back here. The pulpit is here. It's on the short side, which is not usual. And then this is the minister's pew. And the, Sarah would have to sit here and face the entire congregation. So the congregation watched every emotion that went through her face. And when she had kids, they got lined up, and the congregation watched them. She had, she had, uh, they had 11 children, uh, one every two years, uh, Sarah in 1728, Jerusha in 1730, uh, Esther in 1732, Lucy in 1734, Timothy, the eldest of Jonathan's sons, in 1736, and then the numbers uh, continue. I, I don't remember who's from that point. 1738, 1740, there's a three-year hiatus, which some scholars believe she might have had a miscarriage, but we don't know that for sure. Then 1743, 45, 47, is that 11? 28, 30, 32, 34, 36, 38, 40, 43, 45, 47, 49. And the youngest is Pierpont. So there's uh, three sons, eight girls. They all live to adulthood. That creates all kinds of problems for Edwards. He never has enough money, and he's constantly asking for money. He, he runs out of a variety of things. He runs out of paper regularly. And so we have, we have all kinds of knowledge of his household because he would write on the back of bills. So, for instance, we know that they ate a ton of chocolate in the house. They're regularly sending to Boston to buy tons and tons of chocolate. Uh, when I was there, it was interesting, when I was there in Northampton, and I remember coming out of the, what is now the fifth building of the meeting house, and right across the road there was a chocolatier. You know, one of these chocolate stores. I thought, man, Jonathan would have loved that. He wouldn't have to, he wouldn't have to be sending to Boston to be right there, right there across the road. And... Um, um, all of them are converted of his children. There is some question about Pierpont, but I, I know I, I came across recently uh, a sermon that Pierpont had printed. Not, uh, somebody had preached it. He wanted it printed. I think Pierpont was converted. Um, pretty well all of his grandchildren were converted. There are tons of Jonathan Edwards' descendants around uh, in America. Uh, one of his grandchildren was not. And that's the famous Aaron Burr, 
Jr., who was killed in a duel, who killed uh, um, Alexander Hamilton in a duel. And that was Edwards' grandson by his third daughter, Esther, who married Aaron Burr Sr. When, uh, so when Edwards becomes the pastor in 1728, uh, 1729, when his, his, his grandfather dies, the church is spiritually in a mess. And Edwards begins to preach two, two series, and one of them, one of them is, is an understandable series. It's justification by faith alone. That God accepts you not because you're your father or your mother or a member of this church, not because of good works. In fact, in, in the face of a holy God, you are all under the threat of damnation if you are not in Christ. And so he preaches the biblical Reformation understanding of justification by faith. The other thing he preaches, and I'll be honest, I didn't notice this until probably about four or five years ago, well, about four or five years ago, and I've been reading Edwards for a long time. And um, he preached a series on family government. And one of the things I noted, I've noticed over the years frequently during times of revival, the whole issue of parents raising children in the faith is an emphasis. And, uh, you know, to be honest, I never noticed that. It's funny, you know, you can read stuff and not notice it because you're not looking for it and you're not asking questions about it. I wasn't looking for it. It, didn't, it, didn't, I, it never occurred to me that family governance was an important part of revival, but it was to Edwards. Um... And so Edwards is preaches these two series, particularly the series on justification. And in the fall, uh, the late fall of 1734, God began to work in Northampton. Please note the date. It's the same dates as God's doing these conversions of these men over in Britain. And what happens on that date is there was a young woman in the church. He describes her as one of the greatest company keepers in the town. And if you don't know what he's talking about, you think, oh, she's just a very you know, outgoing young woman. Uh, she's talking, he's talking about her moral character. And she rarely ever came to church. One of the few people in town who didn't come to church. And uh, God saved her. And she starts coming to church and sharing her, what God has done to her soul with others. And um, Edward says, within this very short space of time, four or five people were suddenly converted and then, he said, the Spirit began to move in power. And uh, he links, he links the revival to preaching. It's very clear. We have the time to look at it. He makes a clear link of the revival is linked to the preaching, the preaching of the gospel. And again, I think that's very important in our day when some want to separate preaching from revival. That for some, revival's got, no, preaching's got very little to do with the revival. For Edwards, it's got everything to do with revival, because revival is not revival unless it's shaped by the Word of God. One of the things that the Spirit does in revival, He gives men, men and women a hunger for the Word, He exalts the Word, and the Word is central to revival. Now, within a very short space of time, between, um, between uh, December of 1734 and June the 1st of 1735, there are somewhere around 300 conversions in the town. Got about 1,200 adults, about 300 conversions. Some of the conversions are very young. There's a young, young woman named Phoebe Bartlett. She was four years old. She heard the gospel. God saved her. She then went home and started exhorting her parents to embrace the gospel. And many years later, when uh, the, Edwards' account of the revival was printed, 
uh, somebody who knew Phoebe Bartlett had a footnote. This is around 17, this is about 1780. So this is about 50 years later, and somebody in the footnote says, uh, and Phoebe Bartlett is still walking with the Lord. Uh, but the, 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 the conver her conversion as a young child was probably on the unusual side. Most of those people converted were adults. Edwards would later say that some of them were caught up in the emotion of the time. But he said the vast majority of them were real. And sometimes as the word was being preached, people would be weeping. Weeping, some weeping in conviction of sin, others weeping for their friends and relatives who were not in Christ, others weeping with joy at what God had done for them that week. And there were remarkable scenes. Um, Edwards didn't put a lot of stock in physical phenomena. Uh, some would. Uh, Edwards saw people sometimes physically collapse. Um, Edwards would say, these things are neither here nor there. Uh, they're not sign of God's working. They're not a sign that He's not working. It's it's not simply psychological. It doesn't. It, 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 he would say the word the word of Scripture gives us no indication of the sort of physical phenomena that attend conversion. And Edwards would lay out a pattern of conversion, what that entails. Which I'll what I'll do is maybe I'll have we'll have a break and I'll, I'll pick up in the next hour. This revival ends suddenly in 1735. There was a man in the church whose name was Holly. He'd been going for many years. He was ardent in his, in his desire to know Christ. He had no assurance of salvation. He was, he was horrified that this, this young woman who had no interest in the church was suddenly converted, knew she was saved. Why, why didn't he have assurance? And the devil began to play with his mind. And on this one Sunday, he slit his throat. Because the devil had convinced him, the only way you're going to know if you're saved when you stand before Christ. And that brought a complete damper on the revival. His son would never forgive Edwards. His son would blame Edwards for his father's death. And many years later, he would, make, he would spread slander about Edwards that would lead to Edwards' dismissal that he would repent of publicly in, the, in, a, in a Boston newspaper in the early 1760s, where he would admit that he had lied about, his, uh, about Edwards. And he asked Edwards' his family to forgive him. By that time, Jonathan and Sarah were with the Lord. So the, the media, that immediate revival ends suddenly. Edwards will write that story up. Howell Harris reads it about two years later, is thrilled what God is doing in New England. And Edward gives Edwards a hunger for revival. And so when in the fall of 1739, he hears that George Whitfield is preaching in America, he writes a letter to him and says, Sir, even though we're of different ecclesial persuasions, please, will you come to Northampton? And uh, Whitfield uh, came to Northampton after a preaching spell in Boston. Three weeks in Boston in the fall of 1740. First week, he preached to 2,000 people at Old South. If you ever go to Boston, you have to go to Old South Church. It's now a museum. It's very nicely done. That's where he first preached. Second Sunday, he was on Boston Common, 8,000 people. There's only, there were only 8,000 people in Boston. Third Sunday, 15,000. How do we know that? Benjamin Franklin had heard about him. Franklin's an amazing figure. Uh, never a Christian. He loved Whitfield. Went to hear Whitfield preach on the third Sunday. He paced out the crowd. And by, I'm no good at math, but he figured out if you've got a radius of such and such a dist uh, amount, 
and each person occupies so much space. How many people are there? He estimated 15,000 people. Could they all hear Whitfield? Whitfield had an incredible voice. A uh, number of students of acoustics have done studies that Whitfield, his voice could be heard up to a mile away. I'm not, I'm not joking. It, it, it cost him, by the way. It, it destroyed his lungs. He, he often, after preaching, he'd be spitting up blood. 15,000 people. And from there, he went to Northampton. And Edwards was over the moon about this preaching. He talks about how his daughters were in tears as Whitfield was preaching. Probably the three eldest daughters, uh, Sarah, uh, Jerusha, and Esther, were converted on Whitfield's preaching in the early 1740s. And um, uh, revival on a much bigger scale, grander scale, had come to New England. Out of a population of, think of this, out of a population of 250,000 people, 50,000 conversions in three years. You think of, think of what that would mean in, in Owensboro. I have no idea what the population of Owensboro is. 60,000? Let's say 10,000 conversions in three years. Where would you put them all? What would you do with them all? Let's say Kentucky. How big's Kentucky? Five million? Okay. Now, now I've got to do math. Seven into five million. <laughs> let, 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 is it five million? Would it be five million? Well, let's say, let's say eight. Oh, okay. Let's say five million. Eight hundred thousand. Think of it. Oh, that's not. Seven hundred thousand. How many is it? Four point five million divided by seven is what? Six six hundred thousand. Think of it. Six hundred thousand conversions in three years. Where would you put them all? What would you do with them all? How would you pass with them all? It's just amazing. You know, when, 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 uh, when you as Americans think of your country and you think of it founded as, the question is asked, was it a Christian nation? Uh, whatever the case regarding the founders, and I think, I think it, it's very difficult to make the case that the founders uh, founded this as a Christian nation. It's very, I think it's the founders themselves, definitely Jefferson, Franklin, and a good number of those men were deists. Some of them were godly Christians, Witherspoon, for example, uh, J, uh, etc. But if you go back further and you think of the revivals, the First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, the impact, that's just New England, is enormous, absolutely enormous, which makes the, the, the rejection of the gospel in the 20th century so much more culpable because of the light that has been here. 